to this week's episode of The Mixtape with Scott. I am your host, Scott Cunningham. This week, I have a very special guest. Let's see if you can guess their name. They're the winner of the 2012 John Bates Clark Medal, given for the best and the brightest economist under 40 by the American Economics Association. Many of those people go on to win the Nobel Prize. Um, it already predicted another prize. This person won the 2018 or was a recipient of the 2018 MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, that's right, Dr. Amy Finkelstein, the John and Jenny S. McDonald Professor of Economics at MIT. It is a very special event to have her on the show, and I don't want to spoil a lot, so I'm just going to say we had a great time talking. Before we talk, though, I wanted to tell you that most of the time, what we did was we talked about her life growing up in New York City and uh, a somewhat serpentine path that she took from... Uh, an interest in history and political science into economics and having an experience in her first year of graduate school work in economics that I think many of us have had, where we basically think I've made the biggest mistake of my life. I'm not supposed to be an economist. I hate this stuff. Uh, she bounced back and uh, has gone on to be an incredibly, obviously, and a very impressive uh, economist is a testimony, I think, that many of those stories that we hear or tell ourselves in graduate school are probably just that. They're just stories. And all model, all stories are wrong, but some are useful. And the story that tells you that you're not any good at something, you have to take with a grain of salt sometimes. We talked a lot about her Oregon Medicaid experiment, which I've written about in my book, how she got into that project, how she got into health insurance and healthcare in general. But we only barely at the end had a chance to talk about her new book with uh, Laurent Anav. I'm positive that I just said Dr. Anav's name incorrectly, a professor of economics at Stanford and longtime collaborator with Dr. Finkelstein. Uh, they have a new book, uh, We've Got You Covered, Rebooting American Healthcare. We hardly got a chance to talk about it because we were just talking about so much other stuff. It's a brand new book, uh, not really so much aimed at economists, but economists should read it. Um, it's a book aimed at the general public because uh, it describes general problems with our healthcare system. And it's really trying to speak to policymakers, journalists, everyday people that want to better understand the problems with our healthcare system and our health insurance, uh, and to try to start thinking about how to better be informed in the voting booth. Um, so I highly, I'm going to put a link below this. I highly recommend that you check it out. Um, but if you enjoy this interview, please tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, tell your students, tell your shaman, tell your holy man, your barista, your uh, person that, that details your car, anybody and everybody tell them, hey, stop everything you're doing. Dr. Amy Finkelstein is on the show. Uh, let's go watch her. And listen to her. It's a fast, she's a fascinating person with a great story and one that I think many of you will identify with and be encouraged by. So thank you again for supporting the podcast. I'm Scott Cunningham, the host. Well, it's a pleasure uh, this week to have on the podcast a person that I have uh, a tremendous amount of admiration for and have followed for a long time, Dr. Amy Finkelstein, thank you so much for being on the show. Is it is it Finkelstein or Finkelstein? I should have asked you that before. It's Finkelstein. Okay, like Finkelstein. Frank, like Frankenstein. That's Got it. You're... All right. Amy, Dr. Amy Finkelstein. Um, so for the sake of the listener, I won't ask you to repeat your name, but could you tell us 
um, the your job title and uh, who pays your your salary? Uh, I'm uh, the John and Jenny S. McDonald Professor of Economics at MIT. So MIT pays my salary. Okay. I'm also I'm also the uh, founding editor of uh, the AR Insights Journal. So I get paid by them as well. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't realize you was the you were the founding editor. Okay, you've been doing that. Then how many years you've been doing that? Uh, I'm the my second third year term will end at the end of December. So oh, it's been that long. Years, and then uh, Matt, Matt Jenskow from Stanford is taking over. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. All right. So I have an icebreaker. So what's a memory of a vacation that you took with your family growing up that you still kind of have noticed that will pop in your head from time to time? Okay. This is this is totally embarrassing um, <laughs> and, and not profound or related to economics at all. Uh, but we, well, we took... I, I really like taking vacation with my family when I was a kid and we try to do it with our kids now. But um, when I was about eight or nine, we went to Parrot, uh, no, to Monkey Jungle in Miami. Oh. And I have an older brother and a monkey shot on him. <laughs> it, it remains to this day the like single best moment of my life. <laughs> How old was your brother? Well, he's three years older than me, so if I was not about nine, he was probably about twelve. But sorry, oh my gosh. I, I wasn't expecting that question. That's honestly the first thing that popped into my head. You still bring that up to him with like it, like Thanksgiving and stuff? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it was more. I mean, he's over it. I'm over it. It's more like I tell my kids in terms of like you know when we were traveling, I remind them of my travel experience yeah that's right like nothing whatever however much fun we have on this trip it will never top what happened to your uncle what yeah, exactly when a monkey <laughs> shot on uncle jeff there's just no time <laughs> there's no tell it's all downhill uh okay that's great all right well i just want to talk a little bit about your childhood before we, as we move forward so what did your parents do for a living when you when you were little yeah, so so both my parents are academics, actually. Um, uh, uh, they're, they're they're both still living, so that's wonderful. Um, they they were both biologists, mm. um, and so sort of grew up surrounded by academics and academic biologists. Um, you know, all their friends are biologists, just like you know, almost all my friends now are economists. But um, yeah. and I kind of never, it never really occurred to me to do anything but academia. Like mm. I always really liked school. Um, I suspected at the time, and I think that suspicion proved correct, that I'm not constitutionally well-suited to any job in the real world. <laughs> uh, but the trouble for me was, I mean, I liked lots of things in school, and I certainly liked science, but I was I was never drawn to sort of uh, biology or studying the natural world. Mm. I was sort of much more drawn to studying the sort of social world around me. Finding the right field, though, was took me some time. Yeah. Were your parents in the same department? Uh, no, they're never. They're, I grew up in, in New York City, and I think one of the reasons we were there is it's it's a place where it's relatively easier to find two two academic jobs. So they were yeah. never in the same in the same department. Do they have the same kind of like specialization within biology? Or are they like totally different? So the way they describe it is close enough to argue. So oh, maybe, okay, okay. Not not really. Not um, really. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, the, so do you you grew up wanting to be kind of, you grew up probably imagining you said to be an academic, but did you grow up kind of thinking you'd be a scientist? 
since you weren't um, in biology? I mean, so that's a bit of a touchy subject. I, I would say I am a scientist. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my parents would disagree. Um, right. I tell them I'm the only social scientist in the family. They're the antisocial scientists. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I mean, I had no idea. I just, I, I just, I like school. I like doing research papers. Um, uh-huh. An embarrassing story that, um, my husband told an economist who told it publicly, so I guess I'm only re-embarrassing myself, is my first research paper in, in first grade, we all had to draw um, animals, uh, mammals out of a hat and write a research report. And I, was in, I wrote on elephants, and I liked mm-hmm. it so much that I wanted to write another one. In fact, actually, I take it back. We must have gone to Miami. I must have been six rather than nine when the monkey shot on my brother because we had just been all this trip to Miami and the Everglades. And so I wrote a second research paper, you know, just because I wanted to on alligators. Mm. uh, The the entire paper, which of course my parents saved, you know, shows the limits of small samples that every sentence is something like alligators, unlike elephants, live (laughs) in the water. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, I I always just, I just like school. I like learning things. I like telling other people what I thought I'd learned. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you weren't interested in biology, but you could imagine that you were going to be a scientist in general. Cause you were like, you loved the, the, it was like, there was a lot in the natural parts of it that like the natural sciences or not necessarily. Favorite by far, by far my favorite subject in high school was history. Oh, um, and I still really love history. I love reading history mm-hmm. uh, and learning. But I think when I got to college, I thought perhaps mistakenly that if I, became a historian, I would just be learning more and more about less and less, whereas what I loved was the, were the survey courses. Yeah. So I tried to find something like history, but that was a little broader rather than deeper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was it like growing up in New York City as a kid? That seems like a dream. Yeah, I grew up in the 70s, um, which, you know, actually at one point when I was uh, interviewing up in grad school for a uh, for for jo- academic jobs, I was engaged at the time, so somebody they were interviewing my husband as well and, and my fiance, and someone said to me because you know, they imagined they were thinking correctly that we were thinking of having kids, and and they said you know Manhattan is a, is a wonderful place you know to raise a family. It's not like it was in the 70s when no one in the right mind would raise children in Manhattan. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so so I mean. And I, I, I have to say, I, I, I do think, I mean, I love, I love the independence growing up there. You know, yeah. I thought by, by about fifth grade or so, I could take the, the crosstown bus, I could take the subway, et cetera. But it definitely, you know, that was shortly after, I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was shortly after the deinstitutionalization of, of the psychiatric hospitals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember learning at a very young age not to make eye contact with anyone on the street. You know, not really. I mean, it was, but it was sort of like at the time it didn't strike. Now thinking about it, it's it's odd. But yeah. at the time, it just didn't strike. That was just what you were taught. You know. Yeah. Um, you could notice the deinstitutionalization as a kid happening around. I mean, you? I noticed the change because yeah, it you can notice the change. Me, but in retro, I'm, if I think back to my childhood relative to now, the number of people you know, so. I grew up on uh, between 73rd and 74th and West End, and uh-huh. in our house was 72nd and Broadway, and there's a little sort of strip where you cross, and there were like, just large numbers of people standing there talking to themselves and occasionally talking to us, and I just remember, you know, my parents said it, you know, I talked to them about it when I was older, they said it was very hard for them to have to tell a 
you know, a child, like, you know, to look away, to not talk to uh, people, you know, not particularly compassionate or appropriate behavior, but just as a, yeah. as a safety matter. Um, uh. And I remember, I, I mean, it must have affected me in ways I didn't realize, but I remember as a young child, you know, everyone has the fear of monsters. or yeah. whatever. I was terrified of, of burglars. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and it must have deeply um, been instilled in me because I remember in, in late high school, I went on this Knowles uh, uh, National Outdoor Leadership School uh, yeah. one month backpacking trip in the Wind River Valley in Wyoming. And at some point, the, you know, so we're deep in the backcountry, and the culmination of it is they set you out in groups of three or four and go by yourself for three or four days to find your way out. So we're even deeper, like off trail, whatever. And one night we, we had gotten lost and we finally set up camp in the dark. We don't quite know where we are, but there was water nearby and everyone's doing something. And I was set to get sent to get water. And so yeah. I'm walking alone in the dark to mm -hmm. the street in the middle of, you know, the wilderness in Wyoming. And I should have been worried about bears, bears. or whatever. And, but yeah. instead I had this like totally, and I knew it at the time, but visceral but irrational fear that someone was going to jump out of the bushes and like mug me. Yeah. And just like so I think so that, you know, that I think is that I think probably was you, you think that this is my first time to hear this kind of story. Usually the the New York City story is kind of the rise in crime that happens in the 80s, but I haven't heard anybody say they something about the deinstitutionalization. Well, it was you know, the, I, I was know born was in '73, so yeah. it, you know, crime, crime was also. I'm sure a lot of it. I mean, we it's had all mugger, kind of mixed. We had yeah. money as kids. Like this was like a thing that the parents believed in. I don't know if there was any evidence for it, but they, the view was they were concerned that if you got mugged and you didn't have any money, and like most kids, like I had a bus pass for the yeah. Crosstown bus, and I wasn't carrying any money, they were concerned that someone might be very upset and harm you if so yeah. you had like you know 20 bucks in mugger money. Now at some point. I got hungry and spent my money on my pizza. And I always figured it was, A, it was unlikely I'd actually get mowed. Yeah. B, like, view that, you know, I'd get hurt if I didn't have money. Right. There was evidence for that. And C, like, if I'm <laughs> mugged and beaten up, are my parents really going to, like, get mad at me for <laughs> yeah. my mugger money? So I, right, I, right. I don't, mean to say, I don't mean to say I was, like, consumed with fear all the time. But now sure. that you're asking about no. it. No. Well, um, yeah, I remember that. I mean, I re I grew up in Mississippi, but I still rem I just now I'm wondering, you know, even these slogans your parents would give you give you or, you know, don't talk to strangers almost. I think like those are obviously endogenous to something around. And I just hadn't really thought that. Yeah. You saying deinstitutionalization, because I was going to talk about something along those lines later. And that just kind of. That was it. That's interesting. Well, I, I'm probably echoing, you know, I, I was aware of people mumbling to themselves. Right. Being robbed. And beyond that, I'm echoing probably what my parents said. I mean, they live near Lincoln Center. And my dad says, you know, he so he lived. He, he had been in New York since, I guess, the mid fifth late 50s. And he uh -huh. said he noticed that, like, you know, he was at some outdoor concert at Lincoln Center at some point in the. 60s and looked around and realized there were a lot of people that are talking to themselves. And yeah, yeah, different than yeah. it had been. So I think yeah. he had told me about that. Yeah, wow. So it's high school, and I'm curious. You know, you step foot into high school, ninth grade. You're the youngest group in the high school. What was high school like at that moment? Was it scary, or were you excited? Well, 
I have to put it in context. I actually went to the same school from kindergarten through 12th grade. Uh-huh. Um, it's an all-girls, private all-girls school. Um, yeah. I'm incredibly grateful to my parents for sending me there. I had I got a phenomenal education. Mm. Uh, and so for me, the the scary transition was was going to college and for mm. the first time having to introduce myself to people. Because you know, I had there were 42 girls in my graduating class, and many of them had, you know, been there since kindergarten. You knew everybody. And even, and even when new kids came in, they came in, in the context of everyone else knew me. So I was meeting one or two new people. But the idea yeah. of having to Define yourself in an initial meeting was, was yeah. totally foreign to me. Right, 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 right. Well, so what did y'all like to do in high school? With the, because it sounds like y'all were probably pretty close, those 42, or at least some of you, you had some close friends. What did y'all like to do? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I probably worked much harder in high school than I did in college. So I did a lot of a lot of homework, and I, I like doing it. I actually, we often you'd be on the phone with your friends and yeah. talking about the homework or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I did some smattering of activities. None of, I, I feel like kids these days do everything very seriously and mm-hmm. I did nothing. I, mean, I played squash badly. I played tennis yeah. badly. Um, the one thing I did that I was a lot of fun that I wish I'd continued is, um, I had learned to juggle. And so, um, oh, yeah. more than three balls. Yeah. At, at my peak, I could do five. Wow. Um, but it's it's really it's totally nonlinear. Like I can teach ninety eight percent of the population to juggle three balls. Yeah, and right. Like I you can, can you can pick that up. That that can yeah, be. Yeah, I, I could teach you in ten minutes if you don't know. But like yeah. I worked for a year and a half to learn five balls. Like that was you know. No, cool. I've I've never. Uh, I mean, I just I have always juggled three, and and I could not. I guess it was like there was it was there was no YouTube's, but I mean, what did you do? You had a book or something, or you well, figured actually, it out? There was there were two things. So one in high school, I taught the the middle schoolers. I did like an after school program, like uh-huh. you know, them juggling, which was fun. And then I would go downtown, down on Carmine Street, where was a, a juggling group that met of like adults that met Thursday nights, and I would go down, and they would help you know teach me, and that's. That, that was really funny because basically, as far as I could tell, at least at the time, there were two types of jugglers. There were like the ones that were down in the village of Carmine Street who were kind of like these hippie people who, yeah. you know, and, juggling. and then the other is for some reason that I don't fully understand, like physicists are really into juggling. So I had learned to juggle from some physicist friends of my parents when I was like in middle school. But then you have to be. Is it almost like you have to be coached? That's what I always felt like I was missing. Like somebody's got to tell me, no, no, you're not doing a thing right. Or when you're learning a new trick and then, you know, it's a lot of practice. And that was to me, because I had also, I played a musical instrument badly in middle school and stopped it. Not because not only did I have no innate talent, but I never practiced. Yeah. And I felt really down on myself about that. And I thought I was, you know, incorrigibly lazy and would never have the discipline to actually work hard at anything and and improve. So I was super psyched when I discovered that, no, it turned out I just hate music. And, yeah, right. and So like I actually practiced the, the juggling really hard because I really wanted to get good at it. One of the key tricks that I learned from this group, so simple once you say it, is if you're going to practice, like if you want to learn four balls, right, practice over your bed because then when you drop it, which you do all the time when you're learning a new trick or more balls, you just don't have to lean down as far. Yeah, exactly. They don't <laughs> roll away. Well, that, that, that's beanbags. You need to use beanbags. Beanbags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. 
Right. Well, what did you dream of in high school? Are you still thinking in high school, I'd like to be a professor like my parents or what are you, what are you now thinking about at towards the end? I, I think I was thinking I was excited to go to college and yeah. get some, meet some new people and, and, you know, broaden that set of courses, like topics I could study. And I went to the school I went to was phenomenal, but because it was small and it really taught me a ton about how to study and how to learn and, um, and how to work hard, but because it was so small, there was very limited offering. So, you know, yeah. took, so I was excited to have choice of courses. I think if you'd asked me, I would have said I was interested in something in, in the pol policy space and whether that was law or journalism or, mm -hmm. yeah, or working in Washington, I wasn't sure. I think it, in retrospect, I, I realized that, you know, I didn't know at the time that, that my interest in, my courses was unusual. Like mm -hmm. you know, my friends seemed to like their courses too. So, um, but in retrospect, I think it, it was pretty clear. That yeah. I would end up in academia. Yes. Well, so you go to Harvard, you step foot at Harvard. What'd that feel like? You know, being at such a historic school for the first time, what was the feelings like? I mean, it was super exciting. I felt, you know, my, I felt that, so my parents were actually quite nervous about my going there and didn't want me to go because they had heard that, you know, the faculty are really inaccessible and, you know, and as educators themselves and knowing how much I cared and they cared about education, they wanted me to go somewhere where, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would have a good educational experience. And yeah. actually I was, I was, they were, they were wrong and they admit it. And they, I was, first of all, the lecture courses I, I took were just phenomenal like mm. you know you have faculty who've prepared a lecture and maybe they prepared it four years ago but like they're still giving a really good lecture and then yeah. maybe it's just because so few students did approach the faculty i found that without exception when i went to faculty's office hours which they all had they were super encouraging supportive helpful you know so so academically um i i was really pleased um and then i think it was just so exciting to meet such a broad range of kids from, you know, across the country, from different backgrounds. Um, I ended up spending, you know, I talk about it, I'm talking about it as if, oh, yes, I was going to be an academic and I went to Harvard and I studied really hard. But the truth is, I spent about 30 hours a week working on the student newspaper. Just oh, really? Like, yeah, and not the, not the like daily one that everyone knows. The Crimson Tide? You didn't yeah. work on the, you did I, not I worked, work on the Crimson Tide? No, I worked on a weekly paper called The Independent. Um, and it was, it was really fun. Um, I, was, huh. I worked in the news department. I eventually became the news editor. Um, wow. It's really fun. I mean, but it was just, a, I mean, in retrospect, you know, the time I spent on it was a little absurd, but. Um, what but do you really think that was? What about, what about that? Do you think was spoke to you? Well, I think one, it was, I really liked the other students who were doing it. They were sort of a similar mix of like, maybe, maybe. I mean, the reason I went to the independent is I was like, well, I want to have time for my schoolwork. And I have this image of the Crimson, you know, people spent their life. I'm not sure if that was true. Mm. Um, there were a lot of other people like that at the independent who were both like excited about their course, serious about their coursework, but also serious about putting out a good product. And then I learned that, you know, it was fun. It was, I got to interview, you know, various administrators and faculty and students and you know, to have a lens into what was going on in, in campus. And then I really credited it with learning, not sure it's about learning how to write, but learning how to rewrite. 
because like mm. it forced you to, you had to write quickly. And then as you progressed up in the organization, you became an editor. And so you just would, someone would hand you something and your instinct was, okay, I'm going to go, it's going to be a lot of work. So I'm going to just go in and immediately start rewriting it. And I find that made it a lot easier for me to then go take that own attitude to my own papers. Like, okay, I had a draft and now I'm coming back in as if it was, you know, something that, you know, a staff writer handed me and I'm, I'm going to assume it needs to be rewritten from scratch and I'm going to go in and, and do that. I may drive my students a little nuts because yeah. I take that approach to their jobs as well. But I, but this sort of this idea that like what you put on the page first is not what has to stay there. Now, other people, I have some co-authors who write very slowly and beautifully and the sentences they write remain. But that uh, maybe from my experience in, in the independent, I learned to write really quickly and then, to scrap it all. Wow, that's great. So did you kind of have an identity during that time where you were like, I'm a journalist or not really? No, I really enjoyed it. I think the thing that I recognized that I didn't like about it is I felt that I was always playing catch up. Like that Mm. some topic came up and I would talk to three people who were knowledgeable about it. And that was fun and interesting and I learned a lot but I had no stock of knowledge on the subject from which I could like sort of critically evaluate what they were saying as opposed to report on. Now that and now that you know I I read I talk to reporters and read what reporters write about things that you know I know about I'm always incredibly impressed with you know I think I was wrong to think this was a feature of journalism I think it may be a feature of college journalism or my college journalism but but the really good reporters and there are many of them out there it's clear that when they come to talk to me about some body of work that I know about they're not coming in tabula rasa they you know they already have some thoughts and they're they're open to learning more and changing their views but they're not just you know a blank slate to yeah. what I say whereas I felt a little bit like that you know when there was some issue that came up you know, that we were writing about, you, you hear what the dean says, and you hear what the other, you know, what the students say, and then you kind of, you know, say on the one hand, on the other hand. And, and right. So I, um, but but I think that's a huge admiration I have for, for journalists, that they clearly, you know, come in with enough knowledge to be able to sort of critically interrogate and respond to what you're saying, as opposed to just, you know, taking down, you know, yeah. your comment to, to report. Right. But yeah, no, I liked it. It was, wow. it was a lot of it's um that's neat that's a that that's a neat experience well well so you know a lot of the economists that i talk to they'll they'll say you know their first exposure to economics it'll it'll what i've been able to kind of piece together is um it's either a book it's a person or it's a class and i'm curious what was your first exposure to economics for you I mean, so I think my first exposure was as a freshman, I took the intro economics course. Econ uh, 10, right? Econ yeah. 10. But, but I'd say my, but actually, so I didn't major in economics. I majored in, in government or what oh. Harvard calls political science. Um, oh. In part because I really liked history. And yeah. I, thought of, I thought of political science as a way of using history and knowledge of across time and space to sort of make sense of the world and the models of the world. Right. Um, and I think it it is, but there were two problems with that. One was, um, I think to do that well, you need to know a lot of history. Yeah. 
I didn't then, I'm not even sure I do now, but I, but I sort of realized, well, that would take, you have to accumulate that stack of knowledge. And I was impatient at 18, I didn't want to, you know, just consume knowledge for the next 20 or 30 years. So mm-hmm. I probably not wish if I had, I would know a lot more. Um, yeah. But then the other thing that happened is I, um, you know, as I said, my parents were scientists and I would occasionally give them my, you know, poli-sci term papers, you know, to read. And, and my dad would often comment, he's like, yeah, that was a nice argument. You could have just as easily argued the other side. And I kind of thought he was right, at least at the level that I was doing it. And so I got very excited um, by empirical work in political mm. science. I think relatively new. This was the early 90s. And the idea that, that you know, I know you can lie with statistics, but at some level, uh, you can, the idea that you could use data and rigor to try to answer questions about, you know, mm. why certain bills had gotten passed or why policy was the way they were, how people voted, mm. rather than rather than just, you know, sort of make qualitative arguments. I thought it, it clearly was imposing discipline on me, um, yeah. you know, uh, and and so I I really, so I ended up doing my, my senior thesis on, on empirical political science on the question of um, academic earmarks, actually, you know, as Congress, mm. you know, will allocate funding for, you know, to a university for, you know, a big, you know, science project or something. And, you know, why some universities got it and not others, guess what, it, you know, having a powerful congressman helps. Right. Um, uh, but then, and so I think though, and so I love the empirical work, but at the same time, I kind of was sort of realizing I was less interested in why the policy got enacted than yeah impact of the policy was or what the policy should be uh-huh. and you know in college you sit around with your friends and you just you know sort of these college bowl sessions you argue about you know the topics of the day were things like you know does you know does welfare you know cause single motherhood and intergenerational dependency um charles murray's the bell curve had just come out right um, and so so the really like eye-opening moment for me was actually the fall of my senior year, I took a class from Larry Katz called Social Problems in the American Economy. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my goodness, all these questions that we were sitting around shooting the shit about, excuse my language, you know, in our uh-huh. room. It, it turned out those were questions that you could actually try to answer rigorously with data rather than with sort of just rhetorical flourishes, which, you know, my friends were very good at. And right. that just that just blew me away. And I thought, well, that's what I want to do, because I like to argue. I had yeah. opinions. I wanted my opinions to be more informed. And then I wanted to actually have evidence rather than just, oh, come on, no one would be walking just for, you know, higher welfare checks or, you know, I don't know, oh, that's, that's that's an opinion. That's not, a, yeah. that's not evidence. And just topic after topic in that class was something that, you know, within the news or I had thought about or heard about or that my friends argued about. And he would show us a paper in which, you know, time there was a lot of, you know, natural experiments when you know, states change their laws on no fault of whatever it was. And that that's how, how you could you know, look at it. And actually one of the things I also really remember from that course is particularly, I think it was on the question of like, welfare causing single motherhood, which, you know, had been a big topic in the eighties, you know, yeah. he started, he showed us the time series of like when welfare was right, when welfare was becoming more generous and when single motherhood went up and he's like, yeah, the time series doesn't match. And then he showed us the cross section. And then he showed us some of that, what must have been sort of early natural experiment papers. 
Yeah. And, and again, it was this notion of, again, there's another thing I think I, I learned from him and continue to learn from him because we, we entered from North America together for 10 years is the idea that no single piece of evidence is ever going to be completely dispositive. Yeah. And so the more different ways you can interrogate the same question, both with data and with other methods, the, the sort of greater confidence and the richer picture and nuance you can get of the results. And I was just, I was hooked. I was like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Um, you felt like that was more econ than poli sci, even though there was empirical poli sci? But the, so it may just have been what I was doing, but the empirical poli sci that I was doing was about why laws got passed ah. but, as opposed to what was the impact. Impact. Now, it, it, and, you know, because I guess I was always more interested in what the policy should be than why, how we got the policy. Oh, right. Because if you think about what it should be, you're kind of referencing what impact it's having. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Right. So what happens? You take that class and then now you're thinking I was going to do one thing with my life and now I'm thinking about a different thing. Yeah. And so, again, I think by that point, I'm pretty sure I, I was pretty sure I wanted to be an academic. You know, my yeah. friends were all applying for jobs in the real world and that seemed having a boss and, you know, uh, having, uh, you know, seemed seemed uh, seemed not what I wanted. In fact, I remember just jumping ahead a little. I remember at some point talking to a friend of mine. I was you know working hard in grad school and finding it really tough, and talking to a friend of mine who got into consulting, and, and he was like, "You have no idea how easy you have it. Like you don't you know you don't have a boss to please. You don't have you know your hours are your own." I remember like at some point complaining to my dad, like he doesn't get it. He doesn't get how hard grad school is. And my dad was like. No, I think he's totally right. Like, it's so awesome. Being, and not that grad school isn't hard, but it's so awesome precisely because you get to pick which questions you work on and you don't have yeah. a boss. I don't see why more people don't want that. So he, he was like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Like, actually, like, <laughs> right. Really nice. right, 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 right. So I kind of knew I wanted to be academic, but I really hadn't done much economics. Like, I'd taken the intro course my freshman year. Um, I, I was sick my sophomore year. I would have been Richard Freeman. Or was that Mankey? No, no. Uh, my the intro course my freshman year was Marty Feldstein. Feldstein, and, and right? My, yeah. My sophomore year, I was actually pretty sick. I had a really bad case of mono. Uh -huh. so I went on a, a light course load and I tried to take easy courses. So I took macroeconomics. You took macro <laughs> is the easy one. Oh man! <laughs> like, um, and then so then my senior year, in addition to taking Larry's course, because I was sort of hearing from friends that this economics thing might be something I was interested in. I took intermediate micro as well. Oh, okay. That was all I'd had. So I really hadn't had much economics. And so I was hopefully unprepared for, for grad school. And I was very fortunate to get a fellowship that would pay for me to study for two years at Oxford. And so I yeah. used that as an opportunity to do a master's in economics. That which, was kind of like a correction. You were like, I'm going to do this yeah, master's to kind I, of fix the route a little bit. And I felt really grateful because when I looked in the U.S., there just really weren't many terminal master's programs. Right. There, mm -hmm. And I think separately, I think that's something we should we should probably be changing because I think with with the Ph.D. program getting increasingly long and, you know, some people, you know, figuring out after a couple of years that they can fruitfully and happily do something else. Yeah. Know, why, why not just start with a two year master's in which, you know, so you can choose to go on if you want, or you can choose to have gotten a, a yeah. useful and 
degree and move on rather anyway but that's a study but i felt when i realized that you couldn't do a, a sort of typical masters in the u.s i was i thought it was felt all the more lucky and grateful to have the opportunity to have it what was the flavor at oxford how did it differ from larry katz's class i mean is it as empirical and it, no it was night and day and huh. it was I, in fact you know so my somewhat tortured story is i i got to oxford and after the first you know after after a while there, I suddenly thought, oh my God, I had this all wrong and I don't want to be an economist. In fact, yeah. not, I don't want to. I, I can't be an economist because it was a, a heavily, heavily uh, theoretical and math oriented yeah. program. And I could even at it. the terminal masters. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 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 I, you know, I couldn't do it, but it wasn't. It wasn't what I, you know, I, 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 I like math as a means to an end for yeah. me. And I got the, I think, mistaken impression while I was there that it was, you know, that economics was a career for failed mathematicians. Like everything uh -huh. seemed to be glorifying over the beauty of the proof or whatever. And I, right. you know, it's just like, come on, where are the social problems in the American economy? Right, um, right, right, right. And then I sort of had a bit of a, you know, personal slash professional crisis in the sense of I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I decided long ago it wasn't going to be history, then political science didn't work for me. Now economics isn't working for me. I, I keep thinking I want to be an academic, but like, I don't have a, I can't You're running out of people. ideas. Yeah. yeah and I, I, I really didn't know what to do. And uh, some friends suggested I tried legal academia, um, oh. but it, it was too late in the cycle to apply to law school. So I needed to find something to do for a year while I applied to law school. Yeah. And again, a friend of mine who had done this suggested, well, look, you're stopping doing economics. It'd be nice to have like a capstone experience where you need economics. You have to do something for a year while you apply to law school. Why don't you get a job in D.C. like, you know, as a junior economist? Oh. Um, and I thought, oh, anyway, like policy, I thought that would be interesting. Yeah. So. I applied for and I, I got a, a job at the Council of Economic Advisors. He's a very junior staff economist uh, working actually under Janet Yellen. Um, oh. So I went to do that for a year and applied to law school thinking that I would, you know, at the end of the year go to law school. And that was transformative in terms of my interest in economics. That made so what happens? Realize, what happens there? Well, I think the main thing... So the way the Council of Economic Advisors works is that as a staff economist, I was working for senior economists who were on leave for a year or two from academia to work, advise, you know, the White House on economic policy. And the first thing that happened is that I realized very quickly that the people I worked for were way better at their jobs than I could be at their jobs. So I had a bunch of internships in college where I thought, perhaps mistakenly, but at least it was my impression of, oh, I could kind of do my boss's job, you know, maybe I yeah. need a year of experience, but I kind of know how to do that, or I could do it. And these economists were just, had a framework for think when they were posed a policy problem, you know, that got handed down, you know, from the president's, you know, domestic policy council, or from the treasury department, or the labor department, you know, or sometimes from Congress, they had an framework for how to, how you go about thinking about the problem. Yeah. I did not, like, I remember one example, President Clinton was trying, some, they were trying to do something to subsidize childcare for low-income uh, families. And yeah. there was a proposal coming out of, I think, a Republican, I don't really remember, in Congress, 
that was going to subsidize loans to childcare providers. Okay. You know, to build more childcare. And they were like, that's how we'll help low-income families. And so the Council of Economic Advisors was asked, you know, what do we think of this? Yeah. And the person I was working for very quickly laid out, well, you know, okay, depends on the elasticity of supply. And, you know, just sort of like a, and then, of course, you have to put numbers on it, but you forget the, the numbers first. Like, what is the frame? How do we go about That's the framework. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I just was like, wow, these all the economists that I work for. And also, I met a lot, I worked with a, or worked for a number of economists, you know, professional full-time, you know, economists in D.C. at the Treasury Department, uh, at OMB. And they just had such a coherent and useful set of tools for how to, like, take the policy proposal come up and break it down into here are the six things we need to know to think about the impact. Yeah. And I was like, I want that. I want to be able to do that. And you're getting this framework. It's theoretical, but it's very different than the theoretical framework you were getting at Oxford a little bit. I think in retrospect, it's closer to price theory. Yeah. 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 That's what it sounds like. Yeah. It's just like, it's something that I try really hard with my students and I'm not sure I'm successful, Mm. which is like, I feel like, the goal is you should be able to read an article in the newspaper. And I try to take my some of my exam questions from things that I've read in the newspaper over the term and be like, you know, here's this current policy debate or current policy proposal. Just how do we th- how do we lay out a framework for thinking about this as economists? Yeah, um, right. And so I was sort of like, gosh, that is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And so my desire to be an academic wasn't like an academic per se. It was I like thinking about the world and explaining what I've learned. Yeah. And I, I thought, okay, I guess academic economics is never going to be for me because it's it's highly mathematical and 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 sort of um, putting a premium on mathematical advances. But I love these frameworks and yeah. I want that. And everyone I've worked with who has that has a PhD in economics, mm-hmm. whether they're on leave from academia or you know, a professional economist working in DC. So I guess I will go get my PhD after all. I'm mm. probably not going to be good at this research thing because that seems to be this other thing that I don't like as much, but at least, you know, I'll get all the tools that these people I'm currently working for have. Oh, the I, research I, thing is like Oxford. It's the theoretical proofing and stuff yeah, like that. No, I guess I hadn't really done much in empirical work. Uh-huh, I, yeah. I can do it. I can learn the theory. I can like do the problem sets. But I'm going to do it for as a means to an end of like learning these economic models, which I can then take and apply in the real world. And if I can't apply them in research, I'll go apply them to policy analysis. Yeah. Working for like, uh, you know, for the government. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So that was kind of where I thought I was headed when I when I went to, to grad school. Uh huh. Uh huh. And then it turned out there was this whole thing called empirical research, which I kind right. of had experienced in political science, just with a different set of questions. And I just loved it. So, so from the moment you get to MIT, you're sort of living, you're you're living in a a full blown, you know, empirical economics, and even really the 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 credibility revolution stuff too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, and and I guess somewhat relatedly, because I'd taken a lot of the first year courses at Oxford, I I could I could place out of them, and so I ended up taking. You know, I remember my fall, I had Jim Paterba's public finance class and uh-huh. and then Sarah Allison's industrial organization class. Uh-huh. And they were just, yeah, that was that was just much more, again, applied. And sometimes, yeah. you know, especially in I.O., sometimes the math could get sophisticated, but it was a yeah. means to an end. And that was fine. 
I yeah. either knew it or was delighted to learn it. It was mm-hmm. just all in the purpose of an applied problem, whether it's, you know, you know, what's the profit maximizing, you know, two-part tariff on for amusement parks or, yeah. you know, what happens when you raise, you know, income taxes, what happens to women's labor supply, whatever. They were, they were applied problems. Um, so, so when does this health, healthcare really hits you in the heart? Where's yeah. that happen? So <laughs> it was a little bit um, circuitous. I would say that I left the Council of Economic Advisors. And one of the great things about being a very junior person there, as I was, the Council of Economic Advisors has the same scope in terms of its portfolio as the Treasury Department. But the Treasury right. Department has, you know, thousands of, well, tens of thousands of employees, but even of professional economists. And, you know, the Council, when I was there, maybe had 40 or 50 of us. And so if you're, you know, young, and like me, you know, eager and single and had no life and wanted to work all the time, you got to work on all kinds of different things that came up. And so when I thought back over the year, my year there, an amazing experience of like, what were the things that I had most enjoyed working on? It had been natural disaster insurance and automobile insurance. And I would have been insurance. Common denominator was insurance because this was a setting where, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand or the fundamental welfare theorems didn't obviously apply. Yeah. And the scope for welfare improving government. Oh, yeah. My first love was insurance. Uh huh. I'm a little embarrassed to say that I I only really started working on health insurance in particular because it seemed like there were good data. There was good data and good policy variation. Yeah. And, And I'd like to say that, you know, at some point you can't work on health insurance and not get interested in actual healthcare delivery and, and health. But I fear I might have if it weren't for the influence of um, John Skinner, uh, who's oh. a, professor, a professor at Dartmouth. Ironically, he was visiting Harvard my sophomore year um, when I was sick and therefore taking macro as an easy course. And he was the, the my macro professor. Uh-huh. And so I assumed he was a macro economist. And then I started seeing at these public finance conferences talking about healthcare. Yeah. And he was just always talking about the inefficiency of the U.S. healthcare sector and what could be done, what was behind it, and what could be done to improve it. And I don't think he ever quite said directly to me because he's way too kind of person. But by, I think, his inspiring example, I kind of got the message of like, why are you just like mucking around with the insurance aspect of health insurance? What about the health and the healthcare delivery aspects of healthcare? So at some point, you know. I made a transition that was important to me and probably imperceptible to everyone else from an insurance economist who happened to work on health. You remember it though. Oh you, yeah. Totally. You remember going this I'm switched. I'm pivoting. Yeah. I remember because what I realized I had to do was start working with actual healthcare data and started working with I, Medicare data. And that was a very steep learning. Right. right. So That's I a huge investment, that. right? The, yeah, I was the on, huge fixed cost investment. Yeah, I was on leave the year I really made that switch. Part, you know, I was on leave at, at the University of Chicago, 2010, 2011. Uh-huh. Like this insurance stuff is interesting, but well, I was also, to be honest, you know, kind of running out of ideas on that. And everyone, every time I say I, I work on health insurance, people tell me, "Oh, you're a health economist," and I say, "No, I'm I'm an insurance economist." And my husband would say, "You say that as if people are going to find that more interesting." <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, that's not a, that clarification's not clear to a lot. Of people. <laughs> I mean, just really, I 
the truth is, you know, in a different life, I could have, I mean, I find lots of things in economics interesting. And one of the great yeah. things about being an economist is, although most of us specialize because there are returns to specialization, yeah. you get to advise students and go to seminars on a huge range of topics. And I find, you know, the work my colleagues do on, you know, uh, inequality, on, on, on trade and labor markets, on education, uh, those are all fascinating and important. Yeah. And so, you know, in a different, you could have spun the wheel and in a different life, I could have just as happily yeah. done any of those. But that, that's how I particularly, now I'm sort of all healthcare all the time. Well, so this, I write about this, you know, the Oregon Medicaid experiment in my causal inference book. And so I'm curious a little bit, I mean, you know, the Oregon Medicaid experiment is one that I just, you know, if I had heard about that, I would have just been like, well, who do I have to kill to get on that project? But like, you know, what was it like? Were you, when you learned, what was it like? Like, how did that come about? And what was, you know, for you in your involvement, how did that, how did that, did you learn about it first or what was the deal? Yeah, yeah, so, and, and so you have to remember, so, you know, in grad school, and, and this was still very, you know, we'd learned about the Rand health insurance experiment. Yeah, right, and right. The, and the view was, but that'll never happen again. You know, that yeah. was, I think, in today's dollars, over $300 like a, million. Yeah, 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 yeah. right. Because they're the government, it was a, it was a researcher-designed, government-funded prospective study where they designed the insurance contracts, et cetera. So you have the, that'll never happen again, but, you know, obviously that would be amazing. Yeah. But at the same time, right, because the Oregon experiment was 2008, so... I'm back at MIT as as a as a faculty member, and I have all these development economists running experiments. Yeah, but you know, colleagues, but but um, it's not really being done in in healthcare in the U.S. at all. And then um, Oregon decides to run a lottery to allocate a limited number of Medicaid slots. Who and hears Steve, of that first? Are you the one that hears of that first? Yeah, well, Stephen Colbert lampoons it on late night TV. There's oh. a, there's a great clip that I like to play for my students. I mean, I won't even try to imitate it because he's much funnier than I am, needless to uh, say. But he just, I mean, because it is, you know, kind of absurd and a sad statement about U.S. Yeah. health policy. But, but you know, where he saw absurdity and humor, I don't disagree with that, but I was like, oh my God, they're running a lottery. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was um, sitting at the NBER at the time and Kate Baker had an office a couple down from me and I, I just ran into her the next morning and was like, we need to get all this. And we just started, you know, so the two, you told her you were like, Colbert did this thing and they're going to do a lottery in Oregon to, you know, randomize people it. to medic. We were, we were kind of behind that. We were a little scrambling to catch up. They already run the lottery and they were starting to announce the winners. Um, and Kate and I had several years before worked together on, an, on a failed empirical project that went nowhere. But I knew that, I knew from that that I liked working with her, that she was, you know, super smart and serious and well-organized and, you know, fun yeah. to work with. Um, so, so we just, I mean, I had no idea what I was getting into. What'd no you way. do? You call, it's like, I mean, we, you no, call you these know, people on the phone and you're like, I want to analyze your data because they're not <laughs> probably thinking of it in a researcher way, right? They're not thinking right, we have we, a lottery. We got connected with people in the state. So there, there was a nexus of uh, researchers at universities who were working you know, with the state to try and improve their policy. And so yeah. they had, it turned out um, someone, someone uh, there had applied for, and, and I think actually been rejected, but for a small grant to try to study this 
uh, the lottery because, you know, we weren't the only people to recognize that it was. Yeah, you, other people watched that Colbert show. Yeah, but I think, and, but they were, they were extremely generous. This was um, Bill Wright uh, and um, Heidi Allen, and they were extremely generous at saying to me and Kate, wow, if you guys have energy and ideas and in particular can bring in a lot of funding so that, you know, they were going to try and raise money to do some small scale surveys. And Was that where the money has to come in? The money has to come in for the surveys, these big surveys? Yeah. I mean, at the time, yeah. So in the end, so in the end, we ended up doing both mail surveys, which were expensive, but not astronomical. And then we ended up uh, organizing and running about a year and a half into the lottery, a, a about 12,000 in-person interviews and physical health exams. And right. that was, that that was, was the logistical. And then Cause you're course, like taking blood and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then we also ended up getting a lot of administrative data, which didn't have all the kinds of non-response concerns, you know, subjective reporting that you worry about in some of the surveys. So we, we tried to get at it from all angles. And it was a, a great team of, of researchers, uh, both in Oregon and um, in, across the country, also a big partnership with the with the state government. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a huge undertaking. I had no, I'm not sure if I had known at the time what I was getting into. It's it's incredible. It's like I love these stories of all the shoe leather. I mean, um, when did you bring Dr. Gruber back in? I mean, this is, he had been oh, your advisor from yeah, high I think very early on. You know, we we just you know, I, I mean, I guess you know, in retrospect, I think we just were like we brought both John and and Joe Newhouse in very early because I think we had the sense that you know this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and, and yeah. more heads are better than fewer, and we wanted yeah. to. You just yeah. put together this big, this dream team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was, it was great. J Joe kept saying he was, you know, reliving his youth through the Rand Health Insurance Experiment. In fact, oh. one of my favorite moments, uh, we actually mentioned it in, in, in the book we just wrote because it came up, it was relevant there too, is so we're applying for these big NIH grants to get, you know, funding to, or maybe it was a foundation grant. We applied for a lot of grants to get funding to do the work. And one of the reports, maybe it was a foundation, actually, one of the reports we got back from a reviewer, their main concern, so this was we're probably applying in like, you know, early 2009. And their main concern is Obama has just been elected, we're about to get universal coverage. It's a question of what is the impact of expanding health insurance to low-income individuals, maybe of intellectual interest, but it's going to soon be irrelevant from a policy perspective, and therefore yeah. it's not a lot of money. And I went to Joe and I'm just like, what do I say to this? Like, I don't know how to respond to this. And he's like, yeah, we got the same comment in the 70s when we were applying for funding for the <laughs> experiment that, you know, Nixon's about to get universal health insurance coverage. So what's the what's the point? I was like, great, that'll be my response. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Well, so what did you learn from it that what, you know, you're, that you sort of one thing or, or a couple of things that you just were like, man, I was not expecting to learn this from that, from that whole process, that whole project. Do you mean in, in terms of the results or in terms of the process of doing the research? Well, you can say either one. I'm curious what was the biggest like learning experience for you? And the biggest learning experience for me, which actually was the inspiration behind my decision to co-found JPL North America with Larry Katz was Oh my gosh, despite being at that point, you know, a tenured professor with a fair amount of research experience, there's enormous amount of 
uh, decision points and craft that go into conducting a well-designed and conducted randomized experiment that A, I didn't know, uh, B, it wasn't obvious, except that I was fortunate enough to have uh, my colleagues at MIT development who were doing randomized experiments and Larry Katz down the road at Harvard who had done MTO. wasn't clear how I would learn that sort, those sort of soft skills. And, and this is the most terrifying part to me, you only got one chance. Yeah. Because unlike any other study where if, so, if I go give a seminar and people tell me I've been analyzing the data all along. I mean, that's yeah, a, you still got the data. You still... thing, it's a bummer. It's a waste of two years. Right? But I can go back and redo it. And this was yeah. like, if I make, you know, if I, if I don't do things now, I've just baked in a problem. And I hadn't realized that. And I was enormously grateful to the help I got uh, from, from particularly from, from Larry Katz, also from Esther Duflow. And mm. from Elton, who is not only my colleague, but also my husband. So he got, you know, he's a development economist. He got pestered with those randomized trials. A lot of questions. Um, one he failed me on that I teased him about is, you know, I'd be talking to him and Esther a lot. And I finally went and talked to Larry Katz. And he's like, all these surveys, you've got to be worried about non-response bias. You really need to both bake into the design some intensive follow-up, but also get administrative data so you can check where you can get similar outcomes if you have a problem. And I went home and I said to Ben, like, how could you not have brought this up? This seems like so first order. And he's like, I don't know. In an Indonesian village, you go survey people. 99% of people show up. Don't play me. So, so, I, so I realized two things. One, that I was incredibly fortunate to have this sort of kitchen cabinet of people who were both skilled and knowledgeable and generous enough to advise me. Yeah. Um, but also that some of these issues were unique to, like, the North American context that you they yeah. weren't the same as what and so out of that was part of the inspiration uh, to start JPL North America so that ah. other people at universities across the country could sort of you know benefit we could leverage the sort of stock of knowledge that we have and, and make it easier and more feasible for other people to be randomized. Oh, it's so exciting! That's so cool. Uh, you've got this new book with uh, uh, I don't know how to say. The first and the last name of your co-author, Lauren Inav. I mean, I say Lauren Inav, but I'm not sure I'm okay, saying it right. You've written a ton with him. I was counting it: two books and like thirty articles, and then I just quit counting. So you guys, you guys are. I'm going to take it. That's like a. It's been a very good collabor, a good partnership. I mean, I I can't speak for him. Um, uh -huh. I would say it's, it's probably the single best professional experience of my life. Uh, mm, that's great. I would like to pay him compliments, but hopefully he won't listen to the podcast. <laughs> he won't listen to it. He won't know. With him is is, is amazing. Um, and well, what is this book about? For the sake of the listener, what what? Why did you guys write it, and what's it about? So you know, the book came out of the fact that you know, despite as we've talked about my interest in policy and the fact that a lot of the work that Ron and I do together and that I've done with other people is related to. Uh, health policy and how to improve it. Um, neither of us have ever been involved in public policy or advising mm. campaigns or speaking out on what policy should look like. And I think it's because we thought we didn't know and we should stick to our narrow academic comfort lane and leave the, the big picture problems to people who, you know, thinking hard and working on that. Yeah. Uh, but my, as we say in the prologue to the book, my father-in-law asked me during the 2019 Democratic primaries, you know, what I thought of Medicare for all or what I thought we should do for health policy in the U.S. And I told him the truth, which was 
you know, I don't know. Those are hard questions, and that's why I work on them. I do research on things I know the answer to. Yeah. I do research on things I don't know the answer to. And, you know, my father-in-law is, is, is a very sweet man, but he's persistent, and he came back to me. And said, Look, Amy, I know you like to say carefully on what, what the evidence is and not, you know, not sort of pontificate or use on things, on facts, not in evidence, but come on. You've been working on this problem for 20 years. You must be one of the world's experts on health insurance policy. Now there he's, you know, forgiven for a little father-in-law. <laughs> sure. But he's like, are you seriously telling me you have nothing to say about wow. how we can design U.S. health insurance policy? Mm. I thought, ouch, you know, he's got a point there. And it would mm. be nice to at least, again, going back to those economists in Washington who would give us frameworks for how to think about a problem. Yeah. Maybe I don't have the answer, but I at least could have a f framework about here's you'd have if you believe A, B, and C, you'd want to do X, and if you think more about you know Q, Y, P, you do you know Z or something. Um, and so, so the audience isn't the audience is not just economists. It's like you're wanting you're wanting policymakers and journalists and people like that. People that are you're wanting to talk to them about. Well, this is sort of. From from my career, from our career of working on these topics, this actually is more practically, you know, the kinds of policies that we think actually are or are not effective. Is oh, yeah. that wrong? I mean, the, the, yeah, the the audience is most decidedly not economists. I think it's, uh -huh. it's interested people like my father-in-law who want to understand how we could potentially make U.S. health insurance coverage so much better, and it's more even more particularly. Uh, people who are currently involved in policy or might be thinking about going into a career in policy so that, you know, when a policy window opens up next to have radical health insurance reform, as it seems to at the federal level every few decades in the U.S. and perhaps more often at the state level, mm. we have now a view of, you know, what needs to be done and hopefully that'll be useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, I was kind of wanting more time to talk to you about one particular topic but that, that I, that's covered in the index a couple of times is mental health care. And um, your comment at the very beginning about watching deinstitutionalization happen, um, I just was kind of curious, you know, before we get off, you know, I'm, you know, lots of times when you we have mental illness in the family, we have schizoaffective disorder in the family and then PTSD and other things. And to navigate the, you know, to be like a PhD economist or even like, you know, quasi health economist and to navigate mental hospitals as a family member, you feel so weirdly incompetent, you know, like just, it's just incredibly like, you're like, what am I doing here that I can't help. And, you know, this family member doesn't want to take any other medication. And, um, and, uh, but I'm curious, you know, so you'll tell people oftentimes, like you'll tell the story of the things you've witnessed. And they'll just kind of have this reaction, which is like, you know, why do we hate our mentally ill so much? Or why are we so bad at caring for our mentally ill? And it's kind of like this like response of judgment. But everything I experienced was like, I'm not around anybody that hates mentally ill people. It's something much deeper than that. And it must be a bigger problem to solve that these people that I'm talking to think that it's just a lack of compassion. And I'm curious, like, 
you know, in your career of working on this, you know, if you think about the mentally ill, the particularly the severely mentally ill, what, what, how broken, I mean, what would you say? Is it, is it more broken or is it, are there missing design problems that you've thought about that, you know, are not something that is currently being discussed or anything like that? I'm just curious your thoughts. I think it's a, it's a new, it's a, it's newly growing area in economics. Um, yeah. Always in mind, like Frank Schildwach, who, who works on the psychological lives of the poor in developing countries. Mm -hmm. Really interesting work recently. Catherine Meckles did something smoking cessation and its impacts on mental health. Yeah. I feel like it's a problem um, that needs and is getting more attention. Yeah. I think understanding the issues, it's not, you know, as with many things in, in healthcare, but particularly with mental health, it, it, it's not going to be enough to just focus on economic incentives to patients and providers, but understanding some of the, you know, psychological um, models behind, I mean, it comes up obviously in mental health, but even with physical health and understanding um, medication adherence decisions. And I think people are making a lot of, doing a lot of great work and we're making progress there. But, you know, our book actually very deliberately focused really on health insurance reform and not yeah. on care delivery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I don't, I think we have more questions than we have answers. Mm. Uh, which is why, despite you know having now said, I think I know what to do about U.S. health insurance policies. I'm not going to work on that anymore. Um, I think there's still a lot of work. I'm hoping to do some of it. There's much more on how to improve the delivery of healthcare, yeah. particularly but not exclusively, you know, mental healthcare and also physical healthcare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the we are at the top of the hour, and I promised you that I would uh, not keep you too long. I have one last question. Um, if you could go back to now, I guess, now I'm going to change it a little bit. If you could go back to that younger Amy uh, Finkelstein that was at Oxford, maybe that, you know, sh she's uh, kind of at her lowest point, and you could go back and you know, she doesn't recognize you necessarily, but you go back with her and you take her out for drinks and you just sit with her and you listen to her story and you comfort her and you can only really tell her one thing, you know, what, what do you think? What do you think now that you've like lived this life? What, what do you think you really wish you could tell her, you know, that about the, where she I, was? I think I know what I tell her. It's what I, you know, but I imagine myself telling my kids when they're a little older and going through something similar. And I'm sure, it, well, maybe it'll help them. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped her, which is just to say, like, be a little patient. Like, just because right today you can't no longer see your clear, you know, 25 year forward professional path doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it doesn't exist. I think for me, yeah. what was really hard at Oxford was. You know, I, I was perfectly happy day to day. I liked my courses and, you know, I liked working at CEA, but there was this just looming, you know, cloud of worry over my head of like, what is my life going to be like? And I can't see the path forward. And I think uh -huh. you know, the right advice is like, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist and won't be pleasurable. Right. And so just, you know, keep doing what you're doing and mm. you don't have to worry so much in the meantime. I'm sure I wouldn't have listened. I'm, 
I'm sure I don't listen now and I, whatever my current worries are, people say probably something similar. Mm. But I do think, you know, it's not like you shouldn't think at all about, you know, either, you know, do I think I'm moving forward in life? But I think I was just too consumed with, I don't know, I can't see what my career is going to be like in 20 years. And therefore, that must mean there's no, like, professional path for me as opposed to, yeah, often, I think true research as well. I've gotten much more comfortable with it in research, but unlike your career, which you only get to really live once, you know, right. research you cycle. So every, you know, every few years you're starting new projects and gotten much more comfortable with the uncertainty. Like you yeah. have some sense of where you're going. What I always say about a research project is you have to go in with some idea. Otherwise yeah. you're totally, you know, just, you know, casting about with no direction, but you can't, yeah. can't be too wedded to the idea because inevitably yeah other things are going to happen and you got to sort of go where the results are going. And that may mean changing the project entirely. And I guess that's what I would say to my younger self about thinking about your life career. Like you need to have some like guess at the moment of where you're going, but like you should have a healthy realization that probably it's going to end up very different from what you're imagining at the moment. And that's not just okay. That's kind of part of the fun. Yeah. That's part of the adventure kind of being the, not being, uh, so so upset by that uncertainty yeah but well, still maybe that's being why forward. i was so drawn to insurance because i don't like uncertainty <laughs> yeah right it bothers me so much when insurance markets don't work because they're right. so right. well it's been so pleasurable uh so nice to to meet you in person as i really did mean it it's i'm such a huge fan and uh, look up to you a lot. And I think, uh, you know, one of so many people that just uh, have a tremendous amount of admiration and see you as a role model. So I really appreciate you being on the podcast and uh, I hope that we'll cross in person and uh, get to meet again. I'd love to. Thank you. Okay. So All right. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.